This is an irregularly regular podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It is the air that is breathed and the water that nourishes and provides, but ownership of land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, it is I, Michael, or as I like to be known on the interwebs, M, with a star beside it. I recently just finished my thesis, so I was actually wondering whether, uh, oh, and therefore completing my master's, so I was actually wondering whether I should celebrate by by getting like a a tramp stamp on my arm, like an M and a star. Still a a bit of a think about whether to do that or not. I might put it to a vote, like I am with the, the podcast name. And we'll see see how we go with that. I haven't had tattoos before, but I might try and break the tattoo duck. Hi, Fiona. Hello. How are you going, Michael? Good, thank you. I brought you in, Fiona, because you're you're a thesis buddy. You wrote a thesis that's uh, it's a bit older than mine. Uh, mine's like a few days old. Yours is like a few years old. <laughs> uh, what particularly caught my eye is that yours involves something that is quite topical, particularly within the contemporary labour market, and something that has particularly been reinforced by recent developments involving COVID. You've written a thesis on workers' experiences using ride-sharing platforms. Now, I can ask you to go into the content of the thesis a bit, Fiona, but just to start off, what's the correct term? Because I know this is something that you talked about in your thesis, like there's different terms, but I feel less anxious when I've got a particular term that I can anchor myself upon. So is it ride-sharing? Is it gig economy work? What is it? I basically used in my thesis is I adopted a neutral term, what I thought was neutral anyway, in that I called it the platform economy. That can kind of take a broader range of firms um, and workers um, into account. I went with platform economy as opposed to say sharing economy, just because that's a little more loaded and there's some positive connotations with that. And then obviously, yeah, within the platform economy, firms like um, Uber, rideshare firms, but I I would call them platform firms, I suppose. Okay, so do we call it platform work? So you set up an account with Uber, you click on, you start taking in clients, you're doing platform work. Is that how it works? Yeah, what I would say, yeah. Okay, platform work, platform economy. All right, I'll, I'll do my best to help coin that and make that a thing. Just tell me a little bit more about your thesis, Fiona, where you went with it, its social value, and uh, we go from there. So basically, my thesis focused on uh, Uber and um, basically the future of work or what I saw as a shift in the nature of work. Um, so I interviewed uh, Uber drivers. Sydney area Um, and then I basically collected you know qualitative data from those interviews and drew out general themes that I thought reflected the experience of work for those platform workers 
Um, and then I basically tried to analyse those things um, in the context of the existing regulatory environment in which uh, the platform work was being conducted. Um, so in terms of its social value, I thought that looking at platform work at that time in 2017 when I wrote my thesis was really quite valuable just because of the kind of state of flux that I thought platform work was in and the fact that it was on this constant trajectory of expansion as it is now. More and more, you know, people are signing up to platforms and opting into those arrangements with platform firms. So I thought it was um, useful and valuable to kind of analyse that, particularly in an Australian context. And then obviously every state in Australia has different laws and different regulations. So then focusing on New South Wales, that had never really been done before. Mm. Um, and as far as I knew, Uber drivers in Sydney had never really been interviewed in that particular way before either. Sure. It does come across as a very new approach in research and looking at something that hasn't necessarily been documented so much, particularly within Australia and New South Wales. I'm not sure how it is internationally, but um, I would say that, that it still remains a fairly new labour market. Having a read of your thesis, Fiona, you're saying that things tended to really pick up in terms of this new platform economy after the global financial crisis. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, but also wondering uh, how you came across finding interviewees as well? Uh, not sure it'd be a case of just basically flicking a switch and they all came to you. I, I imagine it was a bit of a quest to find some potential subjects. Yeah, absolutely. So I did kind of expect it to be easier than it was, I suppose, but um, because I was uh, conducting the interviews as part of um, my, you know, university research, I obviously had to comply with all of the university's ethical standards and I had to go through numerous um, approval processes and um, basically outline how I was going to recruit um, participants and that had to all be arm's length. So I basically advertised, I joined um, Uber driver groups and things um, like on Facebook and other kind of platforms and then I just, um, you know, advertised and said, hi, I'm doing this research. If anybody's interested, please contact me. Um, so that was how I basically got them, you know, the majority of my um, interviewees. Mm. Um, yeah, in terms of the first part of your question um, in relation to um, the kind of context in which platform work, in which I um, kind of argued that platform work has arisen is I situate it really as um, an extension of um, labour flexibilisation um, and really I think that that started in the post kind of Fordist era um, as us social scientists would say. Could you put a time stamp on that? I, I wouldn't put specific um, time stamp on it but obviously you know we're talking um, post-war era. Um, we're talking you know, with with neoliberalisation and the kind of um, demolishing of strong labour relations. Um, I think that created a really um, fertile ground for you know, more kind of flexible 
um, labor relations took rise and also kind of involved a shift um, you know, of risk and responsibility away from you know, capital and onto labor. So basically I just see platform work as kind of a recodification of labor in that I think labor has kind of reconceived in the image of capital um, and work are kind of framed, you know, entrepreneurs and people that really have control over their own enterprises and, you know, over their own conditions of reality, that is a, a sham, basically, is what I argue. Yeah, there's there's definitely the initial sales pitch that will attract potential people looking to, to set something up on, like, via their own platform. So post-Fordist, post-GFC... I'm also a, a particular advocate of the thought that capital always tries to find ways of recomposing labour and I don't think that's necessarily an advantage to the worker. I think that's always something that's in line with a falling rate of profit, some irresistible entropic thing where no matter what kind of project set up, there is always some irresistible force that means that whatever capital that you can accrue, it will always drop in time for whatever reason. And that compels your average garden variety capitalist to find more innovative, re-exploitative ways of finding that cash. So with the introduction of platform work, how does that look? With the people that you interviewed, Fiona, when they found platform work, did they see that as an advancement in terms of the work that they were doing or was this something as a safety net or a plan B? What were the circumstances that, that brought people to set up a platform account? From the people that I interviewed, I found that for the majority of them, it was a bit of a plan B. I don't really think it was um, anybody's kind of first option. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, quite a few people that I interviewed had gone through really long job searches and had unfortunately not been able to find anything um, and had then, um, you know, opted into platform work. So that could have been for a range of, you know, range of reasons. In particular, age was a big one that I found. Quite a few um, kind of more mature drivers felt as though they weren't employable in other sectors of the labour market, so they chose to um, start driving for Uber. Mm. Um, so, yeah, everybody had different circumstances. I think for younger people... I, I suppose the, the flexibility was, you know, more um, kind of amenable to their um, lifestyle and their schedule, especially if they were studying as well. That was a really attractive reason um, that they opted in. Um, but, yeah, de definitely I think for most people it wasn't their, their first option. Sure. The other thing I'd like to know, there's the racist stereotype that hovers around with a certain demographic that would access Uber more specifically set people of South Asian origin. What did you find with the cohort? Did it challenge that stereotype or reflect it in some way? I found, surprisingly enough, there was a big range of age. I think the majority of people that I interviewed um, probably were of Caucasian or European background, I think, um, and 
surprisingly enough, a lot of them had um, university degrees, bachelor's degrees, postgraduate degrees. Um, only, I think, a, a couple had only had only achieved high school qualifications. Um, so that was interesting in itself. Um, and they really had a range of uh, working backgrounds. So, you know, anything from consultants to medical students to people in law or like just really all different backgrounds I found. I want to talk a little bit more about the, the union organising you're saying with your research that you um, that you came across different groups and, and a couple of them were looking like formations of potential labour unions or labour-related organisations that would advocate for platform work. Tell me a little bit about that and also with that, oh, if I might have a task, with, is that where you happen to find a, a fair amount of the people that you researched? I definitely found a few people, maybe... 30, 40%, I think, from memory of my interviewees through those channels. Um, and that was really helpful. I got the chance to, I interviewed, I think I interviewed a couple of people like the, the, the vice president of um, one of those particular associations. So that was really useful to kind of get uh, her perspective on, you know, the work that the ride sharing um, drivers associations were doing. Um, basically, I just um, found that while, you know, these organisations have kind of popped up, um, you know, organically or, you know, uh, spontaneously, um, certain drivers kind of feeling um, the need for, um, you know, a space to kind of um, exchange information and, um, you know, provide a bit of collective power for drivers. In, in a legal sense, those organisations have no power. Mm. So um, whilst they can, um, you know, serve a really important role in educating drivers and providing them with information that um, Uber doesn't because it's very um, opaque in its... Um, communications with workers it doesn't advise them of um, developments in you know like in any um, kind of areas of regulation to do with tax insurance um, you know anything um, these ride these ride sharing associations did play a really important role but in terms of what I see as the most important role of um, unions they have no real power in terms of collective action so if um, you know, a, one of these associations look to organise a strike, for instance, or, um, you know, any kind of collective action of that nature, um, that could actually violate, um, uh, like, competition law um, because um, technically they're kind of colluding, you know, and um, that it's, it's like a collective boycott and because um, drivers are classified as independent contractors, you know, they would um, face consequences from like the ACCC as, you know, it's seen as an anti-competitive action because they're not classified as employees that therefore have the right to strike and exercise their collective power. So this isn't um, necessarily just a case of risking being sacked. This is uh, an additional risk of 
receiving some sort of legislative penalty. So what are some of the risks? What could you chance by breaching your contract? Obviously, contracts could be terminated. And another consequence of not being an employee is that um, as independent contractors, drivers don't have access to the unfair dismissal regime. So um, Uber can really just say, oh, I, you know, I don't like what you did. I don't know, 10 days ago, I'm going to, um, you know, switch off switch off your app and you're not going to be able to access it anymore so there's a lot of people who've had their accounts just um blocked and they can't get on anymore and for people who were driving uber as their kind of full-time gig um that's really bad consequences for them um also um you know you you can be brought um like action can be brought um by, I can't remember the exact tribunal, but, um, you know, you're, you're basically, like, proceeding can be brought against you and I, you can face fines and things like, th- things of that nature. Um, and, you know, that could have potential ramifications for future work. I know through my line of work, I come in across, um, yeah, it's called NCAT. I can't exactly remember what the abbreviation totally stands for, but it's amalgamated residential, commercial and regular tenancy matters into the one domain uh, where they arbitrate different types of laws, but it's all done under the one, in the one facility. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the New South Wales uh, Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Them. Yeah. Yes. NCAT, yes, yes. So, um, yes, that could well be. Yeah, definitely sounds like a a disempowering process then without the idea of organised labour. What do you feel would be the prospects then for these emerging informal unions that are emerging? And I'm particularly interested in them because one thing that I notice is, is that you have these different groups emerging that identify as unions. And off the top of my head, I can think of... um, Big ones like the Scarlet Alliance, Australian Unemployment Workers Union, uh, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, if I've gotten that one correctly. Shout out to all those comrades, by the way. They exist as informal unions in the sense that the Australian Council of Trade Unions has not formally recognised them as legal union affiliates. So for me, there's that scope for agitation amongst the more institutionally based unions for admitting these other organisations into the fold. Definitely like to, to try to tease those issues out a bit more. Fiona, in your view, what do you reckon it would take for the ride sharing, the platform workers to be able to, to get that level of recognition? Because it does sound like it's a, it's a much needed thing given the risks and the precarity that's involved with setting up an Uber account, for example. Yeah, definitely. I think, look, in in the current COVID framework, I I suppose anything's possible because um, I think right now um, we're kind of on the cusp of possible large-scale change perhaps with, um, you know, all the upheaval that um, the labour market has seen in the current time. So I think the prospects of perhaps altering um, the employment status of people like platform workers and perhaps giving them more rights is more likely than I suppose it was in 2017 when I wrote my thesis. But 
Um, at the same time, I still feel as though um, platform firms such as Uber do ultimately wield greater power um, than these kind of small informal labor, um, you know, driver organisations. Ultimately, in order for those kind of um, driver associations to be given the, the collective bargaining power that they need, I think that what would be required would be a, a change in the classification um, of Uber drivers as, you know, casual employees um, as opposed to independent contractors. I don't think within the current regulatory environment anything less would really allow um, them to effectively negotiate on drivers' behalf. Mm. Um, in the in the kind of shorter term, I think um, you know they could work um, more closely with perhaps larger um, union organisations like Unions New South Wales. I know they they worked with um, Airtasker. They negotiated. Um, with them a couple of years ago and they were able to devise um, agreements that were more advantageous for workers. Um, and obviously that's even even getting, um, you know, a platform firm to the negotiating table. There's no requirement for them to negotiate with somebody like a, you know, unofficial ride-sharing drivers association, whereas with you know, obviously a proper union, mm. um, there is that requirement. So I think perhaps um, some collaboration um, between larger, more powerful unions and these smaller informal associations could also um, create good outcomes um, for platforms. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested in seeing the opportunities for that and also the energy and the interest within um, the institutional unions towards championing that. One other labour action option that I'd be particularly interested in exploring further, and this came up in a previous episode when I spoke with uh, another Michael, or as he wants me to call him, M Prime. <laughs> Hi, Michael. What we were discussing in that uh, that episode was this uh, this app that democratizes platform work. Although, from what the way that Michael was describing it, it seems like a very um, preliminary type of application, where it's based upon a lot of co-op activity. I think my understanding of it is is that you're basically taking out the the rent seeker, the ones that that set up the infrastructure, um, basically set up the the accounts and then um, skim the fat off and that's how they make it a lucrative business venture for them. But in terms of making a more democratic process in terms of platform work and and pretty much, to me, I think that would realise some of the, the stuff that, that was actually promised to workers before they actually created accounts. Um, I'm wondering what are the prospects of that, because where myself and Michael found the immediate problem was how to make this type of application more available amongst current platform workers as labour alternative. And then from there, where's the energy and the ability to be able to utilise such an app? What are your thoughts on that, Fiona? Where do you think the, the opportunities are with that? I think from the overview you've given just then, it does sound like a really great idea. I mean, Uber 
for every ride um, at the time that I did my thesis anyway was taking 25% of, you know, every fare. Now, all they're really providing is, you know, an app, the, you know, the, the financial means of taking the end user's money and transferring it over to the worker. Like they're not providing much overhead. They're not providing rent. They're not, you know, not providing a um, property, n- nothing. They're not pro- helping drivers with their vehicle maintenance costs. They're not helping them with their insurance, stuff like that. So, you know, look, I think it does sound like a really great um, idea um, but obviously, like you said, the, the some of the biggest issues um, is obviously just getting it out to market. And that's obviously where, you know, um, capital injection is, uh, you know, the most useful kind of tool in making people aware of alternatives. Um, because I'm sure a lot of people, um, I think, are becoming more aware of the fact that platform work is a precarious form of work and I think Mm. that they would want to engage in a more kind of um, worker-friendly form of um, ride-sharing. So, look, I think it is a great idea. I think it would need, in order to become popular in the long term, I think it, it would need some kind of backing. Could that be provided by government funding? Don't, not sure, perhaps. Um, could that come from other meets, maybe unions or other areas? It's all possible. But um, one small thing I would also point out is that, um, you know, one of the big problems with, um, like, the way Uber is structured is that, um, you know, again, the onus of um, information seeking is placed all on the driver. So the onus of finding out your taxation responsibilities, your insurance responsibilities, your just your your legal requirements is, you know, really rests with the worker. And for a lot of people, that's quite difficult to kind of wrap your head around. So again, with a more democratised version, I'm sure there would be scope to um, kind of educate um, workers more um, be more transparent in in your in their communication with drivers, but ultimately, again, it's just that that kind of dichotomy of the the risk being shifted onto the platform worker as opposed to the platform firm. So I think there would be scope though to work on that and um, develop a more equal and reciprocal relationship, I suppose, between you know a, a democratic app like you've suggested and the platform workers using it. Yeah, in the previous episode, we we did have a bit of a laugh about this idea of maybe going from restaurant to restaurant or taxi stand to taxi stand and and uh, and handing out some easy to read information <laughs> about how to uh, potentially yeah. get such an app off the ground. I think the more we've talked about it in this episode, Fiona, the more that such an approach actually has some sort of validity to it, rather than it just being a laugh. Um, yeah. More food for thought, but um, it has been an interesting conversation that we've had in terms of precarious work and an ever-changing recomposition of labour. I think it's always good to, to keep a finger on it and seeing um, what it looks like, and not only looking at what forms of exploitation and precarity there is, but also the opportunities for, for something a bit better in terms of um, of work standards and, and how one's livelihood can be improved as a, as a consequence. Thanks for your time, Fiona. Thanks for hearing me. me. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and I might also just say in this episode, the um, the, the actual technological um, hazard threshold was, was quite low compared to previous yeah. episodes. So thank you very much for your time, Fiona, in terms of, um, of kicking the gremlins away for me. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michael. See you, Fiona. Bye. Bye.